Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I'd say I go into like a reflective state probably quarterly for like four to seven days. I usually get super depressed, like go into like a bit of a spiral and then come out of it with a clear mind. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hey, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk about learning by doing rather than planning and predicting and waiting and debating, etc. But uh, before we do, let's get checked in. Let's do it. Uh, We begin every episode of Brave New Work with a check-in question, Uh, just to get ourselves here, get our minds present, get connected to Mm -hmm. each other, et cetera, et cetera. And our check-in question for today is, have you ever been told that you look like a famous person? And if so, who is that person? And I'm going to (laughs) go first because this one is um, kind of Halloween related for me. Um, I hate Halloween. Uh, We'll talk about that another time hate it but how dare you i know i know uh it's very counter the dignan household um i have been told for many years that i look very much like young terry gar and so like two years ago i finally fully leaned in and i watched young frankenstein and my husband and i went as uh terry gar's character brunhilda and uh dr frankenstein and we killed nailed it. it was nailed it it was really a thing um so that is uh that is the person that i believe that i might resemble most or certainly that people over the age of 50 believe that i resemble most <laughs> yes our uh, gen z <laughs> listeners are like wtf terry gar oh, i'm sorry what uh um, what, what about yeah, you <laughs> not a kardashian um so uh for me I've had I've had one kind of funny one that didn't make sense to me and and one that comes up a lot. So the the funny one is I had a guy once in a movie uh rental place. They don't make these anymore. Uh, it's funny how we're both living in in the past. In the past. Um say that I looked like Keanu Reeves and I was like I don't at all. Like I, we both have dark hair. We're, other than that like there's nothing happening here. But the one I get a lot is um Jason Schwartzman. Which, like, he could be my slightly nerdier brother, maybe, or, you know, what have you. So I get that from time to time. Do you? I do not see that. That's very interesting to me. When I was younger, I got occasionally Tom Cruise, but mostly Jason Schwartzman. So I kind of have to, like, depends how I do the hair. Huh. I mean, the reason I asked that question was because I cannot think of a person I think you look like. So I wanted to know. Now I know. Sort it out. Okay, so today's topic is going to be learning by doing. And I guess we should just start with a definition of what we're talking about. So Aaron, 
When you think about learning by doing, what does that mean for you? So this is a little phrase that we've been using with with clients and organizations we work with for a long time. And it's it's sort of the antidote to the habit of let's make sure that we know everything and that our plan is perfect and that all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted and that we have experts on the team and all these things we use as excuses to not get started. And I think we do this in our personal lives as well. So professionally, obviously, we don't want to you know, move projects ahead and, until we're certain they're going to be successful. And then also, you know, in our own lives, this, there's this whole hesitancy to like, just start recording the podcast, just start writing the article, just start whatever it is you're going to do. If you want to, you know, start a company, just start putting the work together. And so learn by doing is the, is the instinct and the action of just saying like, yeah, I'm just going to figure it out on the fly. Like I will, I will build the airplane in flight. And what we've learned is that because so many of the markets we enter are complex, because so much of what we do at work now is complex, um, there's diminishing returns on on building a plan and on getting ready and on being prepared. And obviously, a little bit of that is fine. But at the end of the day, you know, you don't know until until you go. And so, learn by doing is about is about taking that first step. Yeah, cool. Uh, one of the expressions I'm most enamored of right now that I think I made up. Apologies if someone else told me this. I'm not giving you credit. But uh, when I see groups of people doing this grippiness and getting stuck in planning is just saying, you cannot steer a parked car. Like, you've got to move that thing if you want to be able to move that thing. Uh, right, but it's, it's such a strong tendency for us to uh, stop and try to plan instead. Um, so maybe we should talk a little bit about why that is. The thing that we want to do, again, this goes back to a theme we hit on again and again in the show, is we want to live in the illusion that we have control. Mm -hmm. And so it, if we start without knowing what's going to happen, that we've immediately given that up. But if we start with a Gantt chart and we start with a bunch of meetings where we plan what's going to happen and we hire all the right experts, it certainly feels like we're going to get exactly where we want to go. It's sort of like plotting the Google map before you leave for the trip. And then as soon as somebody has to go to the bathroom, it's like all bets are off. Right. So, And I think, that, I think that that tendency to want control is what's really at the root of this. Um, I also think that we're taught and reinforced this idea of like, be prepared, you know, make sure that everything is correct, do the checklist, like our school system, our early jobs, um, you know, they definitely drill that into our heads that you want to make sure that you've got everything figured out before you take a risk in a, you know, a personal risk or a professional risk. Yeah. The idea that correctness and planning are somehow tied together feels, right. feels exactly true to me. Like, how many times in my early career working for a large consulting firm was it like, you know, if you made a typo in the document right. that was about the plan, that was the most important thing. Like not the content of the plan, not the re not the shared reality that the plan was never going to come true, but just right. like, did, did you use the right uh, font? Did you, did you pick the right file to pull the right file? It's like, oh my God, on who honestly cares? Um, I but, used to do this though. <laughs> I used to do this. I like mean, you I would still be, do it a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Totally it's, a hard, it's a hard habit to break. But I, <laughs> yeah, I used to be like the one where it's like, if the period's right, then we're going to be safe. Yeah. Um, and, and the reality is like, it's, you know, it's something to, to be said to kind of like keep the brand looking like it's supposed to look. It's, very, it's a very different thing to say that like that's going to protect us from the uncertainty of the market. Yeah. And what's so funny about this to me um, is 
if you think about anything else that you do, like I think about all of the other practices that I have in my life outside of work and like whether that is playing music or whether that's doing yoga or whether that's like reading books or reading tarot or whatever, I would never have my first inclination to be to stop and make a plan for how I'm going to learn yoga poses. Like you just go to a yoga class and you get on a mat and then you just start learning. But I still find myself with the inclination, particularly when I'm doing something new at work, which is the most scary thing, like starting a podcast. I was like, let me go read about podcasts. And it's like, dude, I've been listening to podcasts nonstop for 10 years. We could just start recording one. But my first reaction was like, let me go make a plan for how to do this so that I don't feel like an imposter so that I feel prepared so that I feel more in control so that I can like quiet my anxiety, like whatever the thing is. But it's so interesting that in other domains of our lives, we let our intuition do what is natural and frankly, what works better. But then in work, we immediately go like, well, let's do some research and not be hasty. Yeah. And it's almost the addition of this expectation of performance. Right. Like as soon as you feel like, oh, well, now it has to work. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go to yoga casually, you're kind of like, I think it's going to be fine. Like, you know, no, it's not like you're in the yoga competition. You know, you're just <laughs> there with friends and it's fine. But when you're when you're starting something new at work or, or that is important to you professionally or personally, the stakes are higher. And I think that that flips that switch. But it is funny that um, we get into that mode of like, I'm going to research my way to success. Yeah. And what's funny about that to me is like, you can read every book that's ever been written about golf or playing the violin. Guess what? You can't play. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. practice is the only thing. Deliberate practice is the only thing that builds mastery. And so the idea that somehow we're going to prepare ourselves into excellence is is definitely backwards. And it is, um, yeah, I feel like when there's a way to measure the outcome, that kicks in. Even with cooking. Like if, if you sit down and, and you talk to like any average person when they go to cook, they need the recipe. They're mm-hmm. Like, give me a recipe. I want it, like, tell me what to do. I'm going to follow these steps because I need the outcome to be edible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you actually think about it, what a chef does, what someone with mastery does, they just are like, what ingredients are at hand? And they just make it work. Like, right. they're tasting as they go. They're salting as they go. They, they have, like, some basic heuristics about how to be successful that they learned through practice, not through reading a book. And and then, you know, you go from there. And the, and the you know, the ideas and the knowledge matter, but mastery is not knowledge. It's something else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I I think it's one of the things I've found frustrating in the past in actually doing this kind of work, which is I run into a lot of people who are really deep theorists. And mm-hmm. I'm like, tell me about a system you've been inside of, though, where you've yes, like wrecked yes. shop. Because that because unless Unless you have your practitioner stripes of being inside, whether you're in, whether you're an employee or whether you're a consultant or whether you're, I don't care who you are, unless you've actually survived contact with complexity, mm-hmm. I don't really care what books you've memorized and like how <laughs> well you've internalized the lessons of this kind of thing. So yeah. let's talk about like, we say, you know, just do it in, in uh-huh. Nike's words, like what should, what should people do? How should, how should one unstuck themselves? So I think that when you mix the learn by doing concept with some of the practices that we see coming out of, you know, agile and lean communities, you get a good recipe. And the Mm -hmm. recipe is definitely learn by doing and definitely start by starting, but Mm -hmm. do it like start small, like start Mm -hmm. with 
a taste, an episode, a paragraph, uh, you know, one interaction, what have you. And I think back when I started the ready and even when I started, um, my company before that for the first, probably, I don't know, four or five months, I would take our little presentation about what we do and I would go pitch it to a client and I would listen very carefully and notice like very carefully what's happening in the room. And as soon as the meeting was over, the very first thing I would do was go open that deck and change what wasn't working Mm -hmm. and like amplify what was. And I probably, I don't know, I probably iterated it 40 times Mm -hmm. to find like, what are the messages? What are the words? What are the phrases? What are the order? What's the order of this narrative that gets people to understand what we're all about and want to play? And, and that, that is sort of at the essence of this. It's not learned by doing like, go borrow $10 million and build the whole thing and don't ask anybody any questions. Right. Um, it is, you know, it's figure out what, what is the kind of scale of experimentation that you can stomach and that gets you the right data and then go do it. And I think the question is, how do you know, like, how do you know what right scale is? So what would yeah. you say about that? If you're thinking about MVP, minimum viable product or, you know, minimum viable experiment, MVE, what would you, how would you think about sizing things? Yeah. I generally like to start and encourage people to start with something they can actually do. It's like you want to lower all of the barriers to resistance, failure, all the speed bumps, remove all the speed bumps you can to get that first step taken. And what that usually looks like in systems of any size really is if it requires partnership or someone else's resources or someone else's budget or someone else's approval, you've already got yourself a bunch of speed bumps. So I am always encouraging people if they want to start by starting to start by starting something that they can start (laughs) without, with, without, without anybody else. Um, and often, almost always, the response to that is, well, that's nothing. And almost always, that's not true. Right. And you know what's funny, and I don't, I wouldn't say it's counter to that, but maybe counterintuitive is, to the extent that you have some audacity and some vision, and this connects to the purpose space in the operating system, to the extent that you have a really cool vision and you have the willingness to just put yourself out there and, and, and try shit and tell a bold story, people come around pretty fast. Like yeah. people who actually learn by doing are magnetic to those that are afraid to start. Right. And you kind of become that space maker and that person that sort of holds source for the new thing, whatever it is. And you're like, hey, everybody, come look over here. We're going to do this crazy thing. Yeah. And I think that that um, it, it just generates kind of a snowball effect with people around you. So even though you think, well, I can only do the, you know, I can't do very much by myself, just the act of putting yourself out there and also at the same time, painting a picture of something that is a little bit audacious or ambitious, even if you're taking the first small bite, is a kind of a killer combination that I think is pretty Yeah, exciting. I totally agree. And when you talk about painting the picture, what also I recommend is like actually make something within your domain, within your decision rights, within your agency, whatever – There's a big difference between saying, I want to change the way that we meet and I'm going to go away and make a new plan for how we do meetings. And instead of that, go away and actually 
do a little research around meeting design, write down a meeting design, and then facilitate a first meeting. Because even when somebody says, oh, okay, I'll go make a thing, what what we're inclined to go make is a plan. And I'm like, no, right, go right, like right. write a, a story or write a design or make an asset or like make something that people could actually be drawn to. Like nobody gets re- really drawn to a plan over time. Right. You it's know, the difference are between like, being like, I have an idea for a dish and then you go make a recipe. Right. <laughs> you're right. like, hey, everybody, this might taste good. I don't know. Right. I think it's a good idea. Like nobody does that. If you have an idea for a new dish, you go cook it and then you figure out what's in it. It's such a good analogy because imagine if in a restaurant, what they brought you instead of a menu where you could order the food was a menu <laughs> where you could order the recipe and you'd be like, what is yeah. this bullshit? Get, bring me yeah. the taste of it, you know? Yeah, I love that. I don't want to do the work at all. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, cook something. Um, So, when you think about um, the the psychological game, because obviously we've we've talked recently about ego and identity, Mm. what do you think is going on in the head when we don't choose to take the first step? When we kind of give ourselves excuses not to begin, and what do you think is going on in the head with the people that just like do this naturally? Mm. What's the story we're telling ourselves? In instances where we don't do something and where we go to make a plan, I believe a lot of the stories that are coming in are around future failure and imagining the ways in which trying something is vulnerable. And it's much easier to have a plan criticized than to have something that you've made criticized. It's easy to show someone the recipe and have them go, you should put more cumin in that. And you're like, okay, fair enough, versus them spit out something that you cooked for them. So I think the all of the vulnerabilities and the imposter stuff creeps right in, in that split second between here's an idea and what might I do first. See, I think that's really interesting what you just said, that somehow we're less emotionally vulnerable when we share the plan or the prediction or the recipe than we are when we share the first sample of the real thing. And I'm curious why you think that is, because I had not thought of that. I think because plans are all conjecture, and you and I can argue about whose opinion of the plan is more valid, but we can't Mm. really argue about if something tastes like garbage. Right, right, right. That's like, it's more final and we're more like in reality, whereas there's a lot more openness when you're still in the planning phase and also maybe a little bit less ownership a little bit less ownership i didn't didn't actually make it yet so it's still fixable right and we don't actually know what's going to happen it's just like we're just writing down a a guess and you can say rodney i have data that contradicts that and i can take that or leave it but i do think there's less vulnerability um and then in the people who just do it I don't know <laughs> because I am not one of those people. I had mm. this is a learned behavior for me. So I don't instinctively just go. But when I see particularly leaders who are very comfortable with that, I think they're people who trust their intuition and who mm-hmm. don't over analyze and overthink the leaders that I've been closest with who have been like, yeah, that sounds like that sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. Or like, I'm going to do that today, you know, are the people who seem to have a little bit more risk appetite, a little bit more confidence and really do have some trust in their gut, uh, Mm -hmm. in a, in, in not a cowboy irresponsible way in a way that's like that intuitively resonates with me. So it's safe to try it and not to avoid trying it by making a plan around it. 
For what it's worth, I also think it's true, sort of knowing some people like that and maybe even being a little bit like that, that um, there's also this just really kind of addiction to seeing real stuff that Mm. happens where, you know, there's a lot of more honorable ways to put it. But at the end of the day, it's like people with a really short attention span and no patience want to get shit done. Yeah. (laughs) And so they're kind of like, I love seeing things made manifest because it scratches that itch. Yeah. And so I think there is a little bit of pathology in it as well. Like it's not all woke. I do think you're pretty exceptional in this way and you produce more stuff than almost anyone that I've ever met. So it's interesting to hear that that's like your observation of what happens for you. Cause I feel like you're very much a person that like, I have an idea and you're like, let's do that. No, let's do it right now. Do you have five more minutes? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, I mean, like all things in, in, you know, org design, it is a blessing and a curse. It's a, it's a polarity. And I, I do feel like, yeah, the, the, the light side of that is, the confidence and the intuition and the trust and the willingness, the shadow side is like, what's next sure. <laughs> and what's new. And so you can kind of get addicted to that, um, to, to learning by doing as a way to, to sort of feed the, you know, feed the novelty instinct. Sure. So, uh, you know, so something to watch out for, but also just something to leverage. Like if that's your wiring play, you know, play through and, and figure out what, what comes of it. Yeah. The one other comment, this, that I want to make is um, for those of you who have seen the marshmallow challenge Ted talk and done the marshmallow challenge, there's a discussion at one point of why MBAs are so terrible at doing the marshmallow challenge. And it's because they're taught to believe that there's one right answer. And we know because hashtag complexity that there isn't one right answer, but I do think that that thing pervades so much in industry. And when I worked um, one of my favorite little anecdotes from when I worked in when I worked for one of the big five management consultancies very early on in my career was we were doing like a volunteer day and there was a box truck and we're on third Avenue in Midtown and mm-hmm. it was all of the partners at, standing around and we had to load the box with the t-shirts, the t-shirts we were going to give out at the volunteer day. And right, there right. was, you know, probably $20 million in compensation standing on the curb arguing about how to actually load the truck <laughs> properly. And it was like such a moment of, you know, if somebody had just picked up a box and started moving them, Take we could have already right been in another borough. Yeah. But instead, uh, there's that, there's that, there's that learned feeling of there is a right way. And if we just make the right plan, then we'll get the right thing. And we just, we have to get over that. That's a great example. So for today's episode, only one guest would do, because when it comes to (laughs) learning by doing and just pushing the boundaries of getting ahead of your skis and making magic happen, I have to go to Ben Kaufman who started Mophie when he was still a teenager, um, who now runs a, a store in New York City called Camp that is unbelievable, you know, MVP of a toy store. And I think he'll have a lot to say about how he figures it out as he goes along. And what fun we will have. So after the break, we'll be back with Ben. Ready, set, go. Hey, everybody. We're back with Ben Kaufman, founder of Camp. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Aaron. I've known you for uh, 10 years. I, I wish you could say my name right. <laughs> <laughs> How should I say it? 
It's Kaufman. It's Kaufman. As no, I don't, I don't care. It's part of the show. We can leave this as part of the show. I really don't give a shit. It's just fun. It's yeah, just no, fun to it's just I, fun to give you shit. That's all. Yeah, I'm not the world's best at pronunciation, so I'll I'll take that for under advisement for the next time we have you on the show. Um, as you mentioned, we have known each other for a super long time, and uh, I have known you to do some pretty crazy things. But when you told me you were going to create a toy store, I was surprised. <laughs> what um, What made you think you could start a toy store? <laughs> what made me think I could start a toy store, or why did I start a toy store? <laughs> <laughs> or should? <laughs> Um, you know, I just like going right into the worst possible thing. You know, re- the entire retail industry is going through a whole upheaval and the entire toy industry is going into upheaval. So I figured if I could build a toy store, that would just be such a great business to be in. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, when you start, I mean, you've started a lot of things, uh, since, since well before I n- knew you, you did Mophie, you did Quirky, you've done camp. When you start something new, how do you do it? Like, what's your, what is your approach? What is your kind of way of getting from zero to something? Um, I mean, usually the decision to like switch out of sarcastic mode just for a little bit. Um, usually the decision yeah, just for a hot yeah, second. Just for a hot second. Uh, usually the decision to start something is, uh, is one that I feel like I don't make. Um, and I feel like it's, okay. I feel like it's made for me, you know, like, uh, specifically around camp, uh, and even quirky and Mophie, like, it just feels like something I have to do. Um, it, you know, it feels like here, here's this idea, there's a space in the world. And if I don't do this, then, you know, it sounds cliche, but no one will. Um, and then from there, I just go straight into like, let's go. Um, and usually step one is just like getting a couple of people that believe in the same problem together and uh, start just making stuff. That is rad and makes sense. Have you noticed been anything consistently in that time of like, this doesn't exist to now it does exist like that you've really learned from, or that's particularly challenging. Like what's the consistent thread between making a thing and that thing not being there? Um, First of all, I love those times. They're the most like amazing times in my life for like, okay, everyone thinks this idea is crazy, but I am obsessed with it and have to go do it. And like those, whatever it is, six months or, or however long it is are so fun because you are like going through the process of putting the pieces together to show people that it can be done. And I mm-hmm. think the the common thread, at least in, when I do these things is to avoid, avoid overthinking them. Um, you know, if you, if you sit on any idea long enough, you're going to find reasons not to do them. And so I usually rush into them because I, I just feel like there was something there. You have to do it. And if I, if I spend a year doing research and all of these things, then by the time the year comes along, I'm going to think this idea is shit and, uh, be done. And so I just like kind of rush into it and get pregnant straight up. Nice. For people that have not visited camp and I highly recommend that you do, whether you have kids or not. Um, will you just describe like what is the basic concept and experience? Because it's it's actually really hard for me to explain. It's hard for you to explain. Yeah, and for people <laughs> to really understand how how immersive it is. Like you're like, oh, it's a toy store and it's different, and there's a trap door, and but like you just, I don't know. Do you have trouble getting people to realize what it is till they see it? Uh, no, I mean, like the idea is very simple to explain. That's why that's why I love the idea so much. It's it's a place you can play, but also buy things, <laughs> um, which 
people usually get that. That makes and, sense. And uh, you know, a place to spend time together as a family, uh, the place between home and school uh, for many young kids. This is very easy to explain. What I what I agree with you on is the the magical nature of it is only felt by actually going there. But the idea, I think, is usually pretty easy to get across. So, so Rodney, I'll describe it to you. So you walk into like this kind of like 1930s era, you know, um, sundries shop with like a few toys and and clothes and knickknacks and stuff on these wonderful wood walls all around you. And there's like a Momofuku milk bar coffee shop in the corner. And it feels like a small but really well-appointed store. And then you notice someone standing in front of this like bookshelf and every once in a while, a bunch of kids gather around it and they push on the door and this like huge 12 foot door opens caddy corner to reveal this like multi thousand square foot playground inside that cavern that has been totally outfitted for a certain theme for a few months. So it might be like outdoor play and there's like trees and lights and stars and all kinds of stuff. Or it might be about cooking and there's like, you know, a whole kitchen built back there for kids to play in and all the toys and merch and surroundings have been themed around that concept. Um, and you know, when the door opens, kids eyes are like the size of saucers and you get back there and it's, it's, it's the closest thing to like that Disney kind of magic that I've experienced outside of a theme park. Yeah. It sounds like the chocolate factory. It sounds amazing. It pretty much is. Yeah. Ben, Ben Kaufman is basically Mr. Duncan from home alone too. <laughs> I will tell you that awesome. Duncan's toy shop was on, was on the mood board when camp was created, for, for for sure. Exactly. So I think I know the answer to this, but did you have any retail or toy experience before going into this, other than being a guy that had made products? Well, traditionally, no. But I, in reality, I grew up with a parent who was very much ingrained in the retail industry, building retail fixtures and calling on all the major retailers. Um, I sold to all the major retailers for many years. I helped a friend start a, and sell a retail store. I, I was in the orbit of retail my entire life, but I was never my, I was never myself a retailer. And so now that you've done it, what are like a few things that you've learned that you didn't expect or that you just couldn't see from the outside looking in? You know, I, I think I expected how difficult it is to like, you know, just build stores. I could be as modern of a retailer as, as I want to be, but HVAC is HVAC, you know, <laughs> um, uh, you know, that's a major, uh, lift is, is replicating these things and scaling them. I don't, I don't know. There were no major, like, this is a lot harder than it should have been, or this customer touch point that I thought was going to be one way wound up being another. Um, I don't know. There, there weren't many surprises. There was a lot of hardship, but having built a bunch of these things, many of which, you know, have gone good and some of which haven't gone good. Uh, I come to expect the hardship. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. What I wonder about is given that you started this conversation by saying like, you just rush into things, which incidentally, I'm going to think of a new term instead of fools Russian. That's like winners Russian. Um, Losers also Russian, Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> Humans Russian that sometimes win. Um, I wonder if your aversion to like over planning and over analyzing and talking yourself out of stuff makes you more able to roll with the unexpected. So like I think about people who do get an idea and then spend a year making a business plan and talking to a thousand people and doing a, a bunch of research. 
And then once they get into actually making the thing and things don't go the way they expected to, they're like, oh, no, this was not the plan. Do you feel like your ability to rush in like helps you cope as things emerge that you weren't expecting? Yeah, maybe. I don't I don't like self-diagnose myself too much, but I know that for the most part, everything's going to suck. Like I go into everything assuming that it's going to suck. And I just try and get through another thing. I get try and get through the next day, try and get to the next mm-hmm. hurdle. And I think I go into these things with the expectation that it's not going to be a smooth ride. And so I don't over-optimize uh, for perfection. I just try and like get to the next hurdle, you know? Yeah. Given that, how much of your time and energy would you say you spend looking forward versus looking back and figuring out like, what did we learn or what happened? Like, how do you divide your attention between, you know, front windshield um, I'd and say I go into like a reflective state probably quarterly for like maybe four to seven days and then I am purely like execution again for a long time and then I go <laughs> back into the reflective state and do you do that in, a, in any particular way like do you like go away and sit by the river or is it something that you just are in that mind space while you're at work and it just happens to occur I usually get super depressed and then like go into just like a bit of a spiral (laughs) and then come out and then come out of it with like a new, like with, with a clear mind. Like it's like, it is a, it is predictable thing. Like everyone that knows me and is around me, like expects it to happen. Like, uh, and they're like, okay, he's like doing his thing. Like wait for him to come back. Spiraling Uh, again. Yeah. I mean, it's, but it's not like a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. And I love it. It's just like, it's kind of like, I go through this, like, ha, I get, you know, I got to get it out. I got to get it out. And then it comes out and then bam, like there's clarity. And then I go again. It's helpful to like, know that we have those patterns. And I feel like the people around us help us with that. My husband reminded me over the holidays that at the end of every year, I want to quit my job. Like every year, I'm just like, why do I do this? Why do I do anything? I should stop, you know? And it's just like, he's like, this Aaron's is clockwork. tough, right? <laughs> Aaron is not yes, the problem. The I mean, Aaron is all problem, but yeah. you know, he's not, he's not my main problem. Um, so yeah, those, I think like knowing those cycles is, is really useful. Um, I guess what I'm wondering is like, that that seems hard and maybe like there's some darkness once a quarter. Do you think that there are other dark sides of this drive that you have to make things? Uh no, I dig it. I've always loved what I've what I do, even in the darkest of moments. Mm. I I love this shit and knowingly sign up for it and That's awesome. You're just like, I know this is going to suck. And I know once a quarter, I'm going to be super bummed out and I wouldn't have it any other way. Yes. (laughs) It's like, I don't know if it's bummed out. It's just more like once a quarter, I'm like, holy shit, I need to like do something differently than I'm Mm -hmm. doing or change this thing or change this team out or it's not sadness. It's just like turning within. Yeah. I'm a puzzle. Like I like puzzles, right? Like everything to me is solvable. So like once a quarter, like all the puzzle pieces are clear and I have to like put them together again. Speaking of kind of dark sides and puzzles, how do you know if you've bitten off more than you can chew? Like when you when you decide to do something, how do you size it, right? And how do you, if you size it wrong, how do you know? Do I start with one store, 10 stores? Do I start with a prototype? Do I, like how much money do I raise? Like whenever you're thinking about how big to go, how do you decide and then how do you know if it's too much or too little? Uh, listen, I am the worst person in the world to ask this, Aaron. And I know that that is particularly why you're asking it. Uh, I 
I know I always bite off more than I can chew. That's part of the puzzle. And I guess given that, how does that show up like in, in the execution and in the work? Is that just um, number of puzzle pieces? Is that like the stress level? Like what, what are the clues for someone that's executing that they have oversized it? And maybe that's not a problem. It shouldn't show up in the work. The work should be just as good, regardless of how much was bitten off, right? Mm-hmm. And that I feel like if the work wasn't good, meaning if customers saw it and were like, this sucks, then maybe that's when I put a warning at you. But how it shows up internally in the team is, yeah, it's like too much, too much to do. Uh, so I guess workload. But somehow know. you get it done. Yeah, and that's the perpetual problem is we always get it done. And so then you're like... <laughs> You don't learn your lesson because you find a way to get it fucking done, you know? So I'm like, I'm not, I'm definitely not a good example of like, I'm not encouraging anyone to do this. This isn't like a, I'm not, I'm like the worst example of this. So given that you know that and you might not give people advice that looks like do it the way I do it, what advice would you give? Like if I'm a person who has an idea that I'm in love with, and I'm just sitting here talking to you. Like, what would you tell me to do first? There's no right way to do these things. Everyone's got their own style and everyone's got their own like way of making things happen. Um, and I don't necessarily personally believe in any like style uh, being better than the other, other than like forward progress, uh, you know, like find a way to, to get it to market and through whatever means you have available to yourself. If you want to license it, you want to sell it, you want to, you want to make it yourself. You want to, you want to raise money. You want to not raise money. Like I, I think there's merits and and pros and cons to all of these things. And I don't necessarily like one over the other. I, I just like seeing people make things. And that was why I, that's why I have done what I do always. So the really good advice that you just gave me inadvertently is to say, don't spend time casting about for the right way. Uh, which a lot of people do because it feels overwhelming to make a thing out of nothing for a lot of totally. people, myself included. The first inclination is like, well, let me go figure out what the right first step is. And like what you're saying is like the right first step is the one that you take. So just go do it. It's the best. It's the best I could give you. <laughs> I don't know. I love it. How do you get people to join your cause? Like when you have one of these ideas and you're starting from zero, when do you think about bringing people in and how do you bring them in? Uh, usually you just talk to people who you think might be good at certain parts of the puzzle and, uh, you just, you start working with them more on an informal basis, talking to them about what you're doing and then perhaps like having them do a project. And then usually the project leads to, holy crap, this thing might be a thing. And then it just naturally evolves into a team forming, um, I'm not one to be like, okay, we're starting a company. We need four people. You know, usually I, <laughs> I'm like, I think I might play around in the toy world. And like, okay, HR is going to be important. Like, let me start to talk to some people, people. And uh, design is going to be important. Let me talk to some design people. And then like, oh, hey, can you do a sketch for me? And I'll do a little, you know, project on that. And then, oh, wait, you should be the head of this part of the company. And then it slowly starts to form into a formal thing. And normally... Uh, at that point, people are excited about the project because they tasted it a little bit. They got their hands dirty mm-hmm. and like they feel like they feel like that helped make it. Right, right. Uh, and then you have a little founding squad and you you just start start moving. <laughs> so um, 
what's next for, for you, for camp? Like what, you know, you're always looking forward. I assume we're not catching you on that weird week. So it's so funny. Uh, it's so funny. You, you are <laughs> really, <laughs> you totally are. That is wild. Um, but this is a predictable, this is like a predictable week for that to happen. It's like first week back. Like what? Sure. Hell, you know? Yeah. Um, we just went through like a, the craziest sprint I've ever been through. And I've been through some crazy shit. Uh, we went from one store to five stores in four weeks. Wow. Um, we went from, you know, <laughs> we went from like 40 employees to 200 employees in four weeks. Um, and so right now we have, you know, we have five stores operating and, it's really about uh, taking count of what we have now, which is something I feel like I've never had before in my career, which is, you know, we have a platform where customers come every day just by the nature of the real estate we have. And so we're really asking ourselves like, okay, obviously we can sell toys and, and all the things that we sell in our store, but what other things can the assets that we already have deliver to the communities that we're in? What, what's the programming look like? Are there exclusive products we want to launch? Uh, things along these lines. So um, it is one of those self-reflective weeks where it's like, okay, we just did something ridiculous and it was horrible, uh, but now we have something special and how do we make the most of it? <laughs> well, it sounds like you have a lot to do. So I think uh, we'll call that a good place to draw things to a close. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show today, Ben. Thanks. Was I the worst podcast guest that you've ever had? <laughs> uh, you know, we won't know until we do a thousand more of these. I'm, I'm up there though, right? I'm up there. You were definitely the most honest. <laughs> Rodney, always a pleasure. That was, that was fun. Quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good in the booth. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, an org design and transformation partner to some of the world's biggest brands. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. We would love your feedback, your ideas. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, a review would go a long way to helping us find the right people for the show. And um, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Camp, a family experience <laughs> yeah, store <we> yeah. <laughs> in five <laughs> locations hey. around the country. Hey, we don't have any sponsors. <laughs> if you want to get in on this shit, the, the CPMs are low. <laughs>